on this episode of Adventures in Being Gifted. What we realized in eight years of doing this work is that when most educators say these kids can't, what they really are trying to say is, I have no idea how to create the learning conditions so that all kids can. What sounds like a gap of will is actually a gap of skill. It's not really a mindset, it's a skill set. That and a whole lot more coming up. Hello, everyone. Today, we are going to talk about the hot topic of equity. We have a fabulous guest that we can't wait to let you listen on on the conversation. But first, we decided that Jessica and I would sit down and spend some time thinking about what we believe equity means. And for starters, we believe that equity takes the different opportunities presented to students and basically infuses them with different support and resources to turn our education system into a level playing field. We believe that we need to do everything we can to expose our kids to critical thinking, to the higher level thinking skills and the thinking orders, along with being able to give them that core learning experience that really doesn't depend on their zip code or what um, classes they're in or what they qualify or don't qualify for. We really want our students in all of our schools around our country to be able to have the best experience they possibly can and to develop their talent along with their thinking skills. So our amazing guest today is from Brooklyn, New York. He is an attorney. He's authored two books, Thinking Like a Lawyer and Tangible Equity. He has two adorable kids of his own. And this guest founded Think Law, where he is able to help educators unleash the critical thinking inside our students. We are so excited to have you. So thank you for being here with us today, Colin. Excited to be here. Thank you. To start us off, we want to talk about the fact that you are the creator and the founder of an award-winning educational organization called Think Law. Would you tell us about it? Sure. I had this interesting experience growing up where in Brooklyn, New York, as a kid growing up in poverty, as a kid growing up as the first generation of the family born in this country, I had access to a pretty phenomenal education almost by accident. And what it taught me from being in this self-contained, gifted and talented classroom from second grade to eighth grade was, hmm, this must be how everyone learns. So when I became a teacher, I never taught in a way that didn't presume that my kids can handle the kinds of strategies to use in gifted education. But as a lifelong learner, I have to confess that I was actually a lifelong underachiever. Hmm. And if I'm being honest with you, like, don't just like the real issue is that I was a selective achiever. Have you seen that before? Mm-hmm. Like a selective achiever. If I'm into it, I'm all in. But if I don't care, I will be the textbook definition of what it means to not care. <laughs> I will do like the, like less than nothing. But everything changed in law school. I decided when I was teaching math and watching it in a I taught in D.C. and in Vegas. When I was in Vegas, I went to law school at night while teaching during the day. Yes. Not the best life decision. (laughs) Very challenging. I recommend it. Very challenging. (laughs) But 
something happened. What? For the first time ever, I had extraordinary academic success. I graduated top of my class in law school because for the first time ever, school wasn't about memorizing randomness or regurgitating what the teacher said. It was thinking on your toes and playing all the angles and making all the claims and backing it up with evidence. I mean, it was me in an academic space where for the first time, what we tend to call street smart, finally had value. Yeah. And when I started using those same exact strategies in my math class, hmm. when instead of doing equations all day, kids were looking at two equations that were both wrong and debating which wrong was more right. They were lit on fire. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yes. So it really started to like kind of percolate in my brain that there's something about this thinking like a lawyer model. And then when I became, this is actually kind of insulting to educators. Like I, I hate to admit this part of it, but when I became a lawyer, And working at a big fancy firm, there's something very insulting that everyone listens to what you have to say about education when you're no longer in education. Hmm. That's not really okay, right? Like in the medical field, they listen to doctors. So I don't know why they don't listen to teachers. But that said, I was on all these committees and all these like higher education things and the future of work things. And everyone is always talking about how the future of work it's all about critical thinking and we got to have all this critical thinking in 21st century, this, that, and the other. And I'm like, okay, but I'm going to schools and I'm like, huh, critical thinking is still a luxury. Good. The example you told me of critical thinking is this after school debate club with seven kids. The school has 1500 kids or this Mm -hmm. like debate team that has 12 kids or this aviation club that has 11 kids. And I'm like, but the core experience for these kids is not that. Oh, unless you want to show me the AP class or the honors class. But really and truly, how could it be an honor to have access to this thing that you've told me is essential? Hmm. So that's where Think Law was born. I realized as I was going into classrooms, because as a kid who grew up, not seeing a lot of attorneys that ever looked like me. I felt like I owed it to my community as a black attorney to go back and talk to kids. And I would go into classrooms and English teachers would be like, how exactly did you get my kids to write? They never write. But I was using these real life legal cases and that sense of fairness and justice got them all fired up. Yes, And after three years of practicing law, I realized, you know what? This will be the thing. And it really started out with me uh, knowing a bunch of teachers, a bunch of principals who were willing to give it a shot and had a curriculum based off of real life legal cases and upper grades. And eventually that became fairy tales and nursery rhymes in lower grades because there's a lot of shady characters and children's stories. (laughs) Um, So kids are sitting here dissecting Goldilocks' criminal behavior of breaking and entering and being all up in these bears' beds. And, And there's all these things that kids are able to come up with at a really young age. But that was like 1.0. And as we've developed, we've come up with resources for parents and families to support critical thinking at home. We've even come up, this is probably our core thing now, helping teachers transform their tier one day-to-day instruction by infusing these culture responsive critical thinking strategies into it in a way that doesn't feel like one more thing. That's probably our bread and butter at this point. So be it through our PDs, our books, our webinars. Like we're really trying to create a world where critical thinking is no longer a luxury good. That's why I think law exists. So we obviously became a huge Colin fan with your first book, Thinking Like a Lawyer, which really dives into all this critical thinking. And 
on your website and in the book. I mean, it just gives a ton of examples and specific things that teachers can use. And I know on your website, you have a whole, you know, I don't even know exactly what you call it, but something that a parent can join and have an annual subscription to. Oh, yeah. Raising, raising critical thinkers. Raising, RCT. yes, RCT. Yes. So mm-hmm. in a kind of a summarize for the length of, you know, our podcast, can you kind of explain this critical thinking revolution that you're kind of pushing that we fully agree with here in our yeah. school and what Jill and I do on a daily basis? So it comes down to this and maybe we can go from back and forth here. Like, why, why do you think that some educators struggle to teach critical thinking to all students? Like, why is it that some kids would be like, okay, like, yeah, I'm not going to teach critical thinking to these kids right here. Like, what are the things that they're saying out loud as to why they won't do it? You know, language, they're low, they're behind, behavior. they have to catch up, behavior, yeah. So fill in the blank Too of many. these kids can't because, right? These mm-hmm. kids can't because blank. And what we've realized in eight years of doing this work is that when most educators say these kids can't, what they really are trying to say is I have no idea how to create the learning conditions so that all kids can. What sounds like a gap of will is actually a gap of skill. Mm-hmm. It's not really a mindset. It's a skill set. So our whole approach is what if we made it possible so that you can see the ways that you can and we don't do it in a pie in the sky construct. We do it from a mindset of what if you were, like most teachers are right now, overworked, under-resourced. What are you going to do? You don't have that much time. I'm not going to create five different versions of a lesson. And in fact, in fact, I venture to say that the entire way that most of us learn differentiation is actually criminally wrong. Mm. Criminally wrong. Yeah. Like I went to, I, I, I remember learning, okay, I, I got my math textbook and there's like form A, form B, form C, form D for like this assessment or for this test or for this assignment. But in reality, only form D actually hit the standard in the challenging way that it actually gets measured. Yeah. Everything else doesn't reach that bar. So why am I differentiating the outcome? Yeah. What I need to do is say, hey, I'm not meeting kids where they are. I'm obsessing with where they need to be. I'm going to differentiate. I'm going to use who they are and how they are to get them where they need to be. But every single kid needs to be a critical thinker. So how do we unleash the critical thinking that's actually inside of them already? Stop presuming they don't have it. Kids are born with critical thinking skills until the school system starts to beat it out of them through rugged compliance. Absolutely. Tell us, tell us an example. Like, how could a teacher, like a gen ed teacher, literally turn around tomorrow and implement some of these specific skill sets you're talking about that you provide in your Think Law network, you know, just basically your your whole package? Like, how could they turn around tomorrow and just give, take, take maybe your former math class and walk us through an example of how they could turn you know, the critical thinking skills right into what they have planned for tomorrow. I'll give you, I'll give you a really, really good example. Okay. Um, yeah. Everybody's favorite topic, pre-calculus. There's not a person who does not absolutely love pre-calculus. <laughs> Everybody's favorite subject. Okay. I taught pre-calculus for a couple of years um, and I hated it when I was in high school. I remember I'm walking through Denver with a school that I've been working with using our strategies. First year teacher, first year teacher. And I'm watching, I'm watching these kids do like 
function composition. And if y'all don't remember what that is, it's like f of g of x and like g of f of x. It means that like there's two different functions. You got to plug one in, get that value, and then plug that value into the other thing. Nobody likes to do Yikes. this stuff. It's not fun. <laughs> no, <laughs> It's very confusing. And kids always get it mixed up. But I'm walking around this classroom of kids who would not categorize themselves as math geniuses. And nobody has anything wrong. Mm. I'm like, what is this? Yeah. I'm looking at these kids doing it so confidently and I'm looking at the board. I'm looking at his notes and I'm like, there's no incredible algorithm he developed here. What is, what did he do? And I'm like, it's gotta be his intro. Hmm. You know what his intro was in his intro. He chose to open up his lesson with the most controversial topic known to man. Forget about like, abortion and immigration and politics. He went for the jugular. He opened his class with the question as to whether it was okay or essentially equivalent to genocide to put pineapple on pizza. (laughs) And I wouldn't have thought, but pineapple on pizza is actually the most divisive topic in the United States of America. What? I'm a fan. Are you calling? No. Hey, I'm not saying nothing. I'm not getting nobody to boycott my books. Like, nah. It's one one. You got to break the tie. I, I, I am not picking a side in this debate. Okay? <laughs> I'll tell you that my kids like it. My kids like pineapple on pizza. So I'm here and I'm like, all right. After going back and forth with these shenanigans and kids are cracking up and experiencing joy yes. in math class. Yeah. And let's be real. Let's be real. It shouldn't be a privilege for kids to laugh and learn at the same time. Right. Right. It shouldn't be a privilege, but for a lot of kids, it is. There are some kids that go to school and never had that experience ever. Yeah. That said, it breaks our hearts. After opening up this lesson for about three minutes on this topic about pineapple on pizza, he asked the <laughs> kids, "Look, all right, now I want you to visualize pizza on a pineapple." Like, well, now that's not right. That's not okay. You can't just put a piece of pizza on a pineapple. Okay, that looks crazy. Whatever. And that visual right there gave the kids this insightful connection to such a random, non-important, pre-calculus topic. <laughs> but they were bought in. Mm-hmm. They were bought in. And this is what sometimes I, I, I look at what we do and we do the most and the least at the same time. So we could do this thing like, oh, I'm doing culturally responsive teaching, but you're not doing culturally responsive teaching because you, you put the name Jose in a math problem about tacos. Get yeah. out of here. Yeah. You got to actually make it matter to the kids in your classroom. You got to create spaces where who they are and how they are actually accelerates the learning experience. That's what we call a low floor, high ceiling. Okay. Everyone has access to critical thinking. And once they're in that critical thinking platform, yeah, they might dig down and get the lower level skills they need to answer the questions. But you now have a natural differentiator where kids can go deeper. And this is what I say all the time. Like as much as I go hard for making sure that our gifted learners are gifted all day, every day in every classroom, I also know the reality is teachers are not going to lose sleep if they don't differentiate for a different uh, gifted learning in their classroom. That's not who's breathing down their back. They don't have principles being like, well, right. what are you doing for my gifted learners? It's not the reality of it. By starting with critical thinking and creating the expectation of critical thinking throughout the entire lesson, that just brings it to a different level. Right. So my second book, Tangible Equity, that's what we define as equity. Will we actually make it clear that every kid deserves this and we build a ladder to get them there? That's what it takes. 
Yeah. Do you want to talk about your ladder? Yeah. So if you think about the low floor, high ceiling ladder, okay. Um, this is an example from the tangible equity book. Suppose I were to tell you that right now you have a class of 30 kids and for whatever reason, they have memorized every single thing there is to memorize about the Revolutionary War, okay? They know every single thing about the Revolutionary War. But we ask them, what's the most significant event of the Revolutionary War? While my kids struggle to name that, even if they know every single fact about the Revolutionary War. Really? Huh. Why might they still struggle? Because they maybe have never been asked that before. Like, okay, so maybe I don't know how to like flex those kinds of muscles. I don't know how to like say my own opinion and back it up with evidence. But there's actually something a little bit more practical as about why kids might not be able to get that. For one, yeah, tell us. For one, for one, if I don't care about any of this stuff, technically none of it is significant. True. Very but true. the second part is when we do low floor, high ceiling, we do a lot of things around level questioning. Like there's a lot of things that we don't always think about as educators. We spend a lot of time thinking about content. We don't spend enough time thinking about context. What if my kids don't actually know what significant means? Like if we think about what our kids need to transform possibilities and like interrupt intergenerational poverty, like, my kids need to know what questions mean. Like, like when they say significant, like, what does that mean? I got to break that down. And the thing about it is, is if I really want to break it down, I want to break down the thinking that comes with that. So maybe that lesson starts with a question of who's the most significant person in your household, mm-hmm. in your community? What's been the most significant event of your life? Who's the most significant person in this school building? And now I have a frame for significance that I'm leveraging as I'm going about this lesson. Yeah, just have, like pineapple on pizza and pizza yeah. on a pineapple. Yeah. Like I, I, I have to model the thinking from the beginning. And the presumption here is that my kids aren't morons. <laughs> They're not known things. Nope. I need to give them a platform to share their expertise. Well, and to make them feel like what you're doing and talking about is real world. It is meaningful. As someone who has seen the gamut of it, right? Like real world, meaningful. I I think that a lot of like, when I was in high school, senior year, I was amazing at Jeopardy. Amazing. Because what do we do in high school? Memorize a bunch of nonsense <laughs> and spit it back, right? So like when we think about like real world, I'm like, all right, like even if what I'm saying here isn't directly connected to the real world, my kids are not going to walk around doing function compositions. Nobody <laughs> walks around graphing polynomials like nobody does this. Right. But can I appreciate the thinking that goes into it when I'm looking at a multiple choice question and I'm not just answering the question, but I'm having a debate about out of those three wrong choices, which one is the best wrong answer and why? Mm-hmm. So I'm introducing funk. I'm using funk as the way to drive the learning. Yes. Tell us, more tell about, us about, about the funk. <laughs> I'll tell you about the funk. We'll talk about the funk. Yes. So it's funny. Something about the law that I always loved, which is that like you take a class, a semester, a two semester long class in contracts, contracts one, contracts two. And you know what the class is all about? How to get out of a contract. Hmm. Don't point of contracts is how to get out of them. And I'm like, this is weird. But 
It's not weird because that's what law school was all about. It was finding the funk, finding the exception to the exception to the exception. And meanwhile, we got kids that get kicked out of school every day because they'd be like, oh, what had happened was, but what if we use what had happened was in my day-to-day instruction, right? Like, here's an example of funk. Here's an example of funk. And this is something out of thinking like a lawyer. I got a shirt that costs $20. It's on sale for 10% off. Let's say $30 on sale for 10% off. What is Joe Schmo going to say the right answer was to that question? And Joe Schmo is a kid that goes too fast, doesn't check their work, and just kind of like goes for the okie doke every time. $30, 10% off, what's the final price? What's Joe Schmo going to say? 27. So like, well, that's the right. <laughs> 27 is the right answer, oh, wait, right? But if it's $30, three. 10% yeah, off, three. right? So, so they might say three if they know something about percent. But like, okay, they're rushing to get three. They don't, they don't, they don't remember to subtract it. But if you're really thinking Joe Schmo, a Joe Schmo sees a 30, sees a 10, they're going to put 20, period. Mm-hmm. We get the percent sign, whatever. And when we get kids to think like Joe Schmo, what they're actually doing is deep metacognition. They're learning how to play the game. They're learning how to think like a test maker. Mm. So forget about test taking skills. Now I'm picking like a designer of this test. And it just changes the way that I engage because no one has ever told kids. Kids in urban areas who would never fall for a hustle on the street. That that same kind of knowledge can protect them from being hustled by test makers. Yeah, so I would, I, you have a whole section of that and you're think like a, thinking like a lawyer book. And I think that's yeah. so relevant to, you know, the world we live in with all mm-hmm. these tests, 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 tests. I mean, the last four weeks, all we've done is have tests. And we're in third grade. And we're in third grade. So I feel like I love how you kind of flipped that. And we're not teaching to the test, but we're teaching how to hack the test. So I would love for you yeah. to dive into that a little too. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's about feeding to the test format. Like, right. let's save the nonsense. Our kids, if we believe in the transformation power of education, and we want kids to be lawyers and doctors and nurses and even teachers, they got to pass tests. Yeah. Let's stop being ridiculous. Kids got to pass road tests. Even welders and plumbers have to take tests. Yeah. So we have to actually think through this world where a lot of kids say things like, I'm not a good test taker. Well, we don't teach them how to do it. We don't teach them mm-hmm. how to play the game. Yeah. So like how it's much no can different than anything that? else. Yeah. I mean, the, the big thing here, the big thing here is that our job is not done by merely covering content. You know, there are states that have been changing their tests every few years, whatever. And I'm like, so you're gonna tell me <laughs> that this year's test is online for the first time and you haven't given kids any practice on how to like type in their answers using that weird calculator thing in the math problems? They're going to get every single one of those questions wrong. Not because they're the only content, because you didn't feel like it was worth making sure that they can feel confident to do it. That's weird. You wouldn't be like, all right, here's how you drive in theory. Go take your road test. They would practice driving first. Like in college, in college, colleges that actually understand what it takes to create meaningful opportunities for their kids from unrepresented populations, their kids who are first-generation college students, recognize you have to have a legit career services agency that puts kids through very realistic job interviews where they got addressed, they get recorded, they get feedback, because that's the only way they'll be ready for the real thing. Yeah. Michael Phelps, Michael Phelps, he used to practice 
regularly in his races in front of full audiences with a pool full of other competitive swimmers hmm. to get ready for the real thing. Yeah. But we don't want to teach to a test. Hmm. Right. Get yeah. off the high horse. Yeah. Our kids need opportunities. Look, I got my law school paid for. Why? 97 percentile on the LSATs. Ooh. I'm a test taking beast. Teachers <laughs> hated me for it. Teachers hated me for it. I right? should have hired Nobody you for my high school senior <laughs> taking his ACT. Darn it. <laughs> and, 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 and the thing is, a lot of times kids relax when they realize it's a game. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I yeah. used to teach SAT prep in Columbia Heights, Washington, D.C. to a lot of kids who told themselves, forget about these kids can't. They believe they couldn't. They believe that like systemically, there's no way black and brown kids could do well on the SAT. And when they started to see the shenanigans you got to do to play the game, they're like, oh my, are you serious? Is it that easy? So what was something you told them to change their thinking and to make them have more confidence? One of the ones that really blew their minds is like in the reading passages, 100% of the answers are there. In every graphing question that looks at a chart, 100% of the answers are there. Like, I don't know why they thought this, but Hmm. they felt like they had to kind of like make up all these. I'm like, no, it's there. It's there. And there's little things we could do to like, look at things like never, probably not going to be the answer. Always probably not going to be the answer. It's going to be nuance. Hmm. They're looking for a nuanced answer. And when you start to look for nuance, you read for nuance to begin with. And you learn how to play this game. Yeah. Yeah. I'll give you a very concrete example. Okay. Yeah. How many times, what's the maximum number of times that a triangle can intersect with a square? This is an SAT question. Okay. How many times can a triangle intersect? What's the maximum number of times that a, a, a triangle can intersect with a square? And check this out. Four, if I gave you the answer choices, three, four, five, six, seven. Those are your five choices. Three, four, five, six, seven. Six. Don't even do any math. <laughs> Okay, so I'm being smart. Don't okay. do any math. Sorry. <laughs> Three, four, five, six, seven are my choices. And it's a triangle and a square. What choices should you eliminate right off the bat? Three. What is Joe Schmo going to say? Well, I think triangle, three sides, square, four sides. So seven. seven. Yeah. Seven's not the answer. What else can we eliminate? Three and four. Three. Yeah. Three and four, right? Because triangle has three, square has four. Give it a three and four. Now you got between five and six. Which one feels right? Five and six. Six, because it's even. Six because it's even and that's the right answer. And that's the right answer. Yeah. And like when kids realize and and look, you can't do that for every problem, but you give yourself a 50 50 shot. Yeah. You can use your gut. And your gut feeling isn't some random feeling, right? Your gut feeling is your 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 values, your identity, your expertise, your education in school, your education out of school. So it's really informed by a lot. So to go from this, I don't know what this question is doing. I don't know how to even Think about that diagram to be like the answer either five or six, but pretty sure it's going to be even. I'm going to pick six. That's a level of test taking swagger that mm. kids can have so much confidence on. Yes. And I will never imagine a kid would have super high test anxiety when they know how to run a game like that. Yeah, because it is. <laughs> so, how do districts get in touch with you? And what can you tell us about that piece of? getting you getting you into districts sure is it pretty sure. easy so, what's the cost it's really easy the thing <laughs> is this, the thing is this right like if you go to any district where kids are struggling any any district where we've got like you know 
these these gaps where I'll, I'll even call them patterns. Forget gaps where I can look at demographics and predict outcomes based on those demographics. When I see that, I see yeah. a pattern that's in desperate need of disruption. And one of the key things that I see districts finally getting is like this is a tier one issue. This is about the way that we approach our baseline tier one instruction. We're not going to intervention our way to academic success. That's not going to be plan A. So what we say is, hey, you see those teachers you already have? You see that curriculum you already bought? We work with you to embed these strategies with those existing materials so it doesn't feel like one more thing. Mm, Yeah. And that's a really different approach. So I'm not trying to introduce brand new stuff. I'm trying to make you more comfortable with the stuff you already have. Right. I mean, and this works for the grumpiest of high school teachers. This works <laughs> for like very compliance driven kindergarten teachers that like to see all the kids enrolls and all the hand signals. And sometimes in, 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 in primary grades, teachers are often feeling like, well, some of this critical thinking is not developmentally appropriate. And I'm like, literally, they come out of the womb critically thinking about everything. We cannot stop that energy. We cannot hold them back. We just don't give them the credit sometimes. We don't. We don't don't give them the opportunity, right? Like I I, I was doing a good training the other day in in Arizona and uh, I was looking at a teacher's notes and like one of the things she said, like this is my big takeaway. Like we got to give students voice. And like I looked at a paper, I crossed it out and I wrote in my chicken scratch uh, handwriting, allow, not give, allow. Yeah. Students already have the voice. Are we willing to allow them to use it? Are we willing to share the power? That's why I don't believe in empowering students. They already have power. Yeah. We got to let them use it. We got to be willing to share it. We got to understand why that power is so important to what we're trying to accomplish here because our kids can't just be where we were. They can't just learn about the world the way it is. They need the critical thinking so that they can create the world as it ought to be. That's amazing. So as we're thinking about this in, in terms of like a teacher perspective, what about parents? Sure, sure. Um, we quickly realized that like we can't be talking about critical thinking in school and not think about our kids first, teachers, um, their families, parents, um, especially because there's a lot of parents who struggle with that balance around helping without being too helpful. Mm-hmm. Like I always say, why are you answering kids' questions? Look, when we were doing like virtual school during the pandemic, my kid was in kindergarten. There was this dad, bless his heart, every day he's answering questions for his son. I'm like, yo, I know you were really good at kindergarten, but can you let him talk? Mm-hmm. Like, mm-hmm. it doesn't make any, what are you doing? Like, who are you protecting here? Who do you think you're actually helping? And the thing is, it kind of goes the other way too, because I grew up in a very strict Caribbean household, right? Like, because I said so, was basically a justification for just about anything. But you cannot raise a critical thinker in a because I said so household. So as hard as it might be, as much as I don't want to negotiate about why you can't wear pirate stuff to school, right? Like, (laughs) I'm like, all right, I've got to actually explain myself. Because if I want my kids to be out in the world and challenge injustices and, and speak out when things are not okay, I can't just force them just like, hey, hey, do as you're told, period. A lot of bad things in human history have happened because people are just following orders. Mm. 
Well, one of my favorite examples for parents, and I'm throwing it out there because this came from you and I'm not (laughs) sure because I've listened to so many and read all of your things, but you were at the grocery store and you asked the question, I think it was your nephew, and you said, Mm -hmm. why do they keep the milk in the back? And just asking questions like that to get your children to just think about things and use those critical thinking skills is so incredible. And I'm like, that's such a simple example. We go to the grocery store all the time. But really, why why is the milk in the back? Why do you think? And ask your kids to really think through those things and use those skills. And the thing is, we're trying to create a habit of lifelong learning, which means you got to be a lifelong questioner. Right, so if yes. I'm at the grocery store and I'm at the counter and I'm about to check out and the lady asks, like, do you find everything you were looking for? <laughs> and I go to Rose, yeah, like, hey, what is Rose, your response? <laughs> Rose, why do you think she asked me that? Because you're always forgetting stuff. Well, okay, maybe. <laughs> but is there another reason, right? And, and, and think, you got to think, there's a reason these routines exist. Mm-hmm. And, and, and when, when people start to see it, they can understand it. Like, okay, I get it. I get it. I get it. And I figured it out for myself. And the thing is, there's something about that light bulb moment when kids can get to it on their own, mm-hmm. either in the classroom or at home. That is something they get addicted to. At the same time, same time we got kids that can get addicted to help mm-hmm. straight up yeah. addicted to help like they're like uh you, you you give out a worksheet you give out an assignment oh can I get help you just had it for five seconds <laughs> there's no way you could need help right now what are you talking about but 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 learn helplessness is a real thing yeah oh, we yeah. have to find that balance and again I'm not putting this all on parents because a lot of teachers because of time constraints and class yeah. sizes they quickly answer questions. They don't allow for any wait time ever. Yeah. If one kid gets it wrong, they never stick with that kid to let that kid fight through it. They go, well, who has it? That's wrong. Who has it? Mm-hmm. Yeah. That is yeah. a huge thing that we promote and we call it burning questions. And if no one knows the answer, then it becomes a burning question or a BQ for the end of the class period. And then they have to go use their resources at home or Google to try to find the answer and come back the next day and bring their little post-it note of answers um, to what, you know, to the class discussion to kind of quench that question. Yeah. And I think there's even power in just asking the question. So part of our parent resources for raising critical thinkers, right? There's a, there's a, there's a game we have called informed opinion. So you pick a card and the card might say something like Colin's car won't start. And you just ask questions. That's it. Hmm. Yeah, sounds cool. Colin's car won't start. What questions do you have? Yeah, I love it. I love yes. it. <laughs> yes, we could go on and on. I know, but we unfortunately are nearing the end of our time together. So Colin, we think you're incredible. You're doing incredible things for education. Is there anything that you wanted us to ask that we didn't get a chance to ask that you would like to share with our audience before we say goodbye? I think the main thing is that like, the revolution that we're looking for is going to be a practical one. Mm-hmm. Nothing is going to be like reimagined and reinvented. Like mm-hmm. the biggest thing we could do is reinvent the way that we spend that 10 minutes of prep time when we're in a rush. And this is something I'm really obsessed over. So we'd love to invite people to check out our work at thinklaw.us to request a quote to kind of learn more about it. Check out either one of my books, wherever you buy books from, um, and see how you can be a part of really thinking through the practical way to close the critical thinking gap. Because again, we cannot have a world where critical thinking is a luxury good. 
That is 100%. We appreciate everything that you've shared and especially looking into all the resources that you are providing all of us educators and parents out there. Thanks, Colin. Thank you so much. All right, Jessica, tell us your takeaway from Colin. I feel probably my greatest takeaway and something that I truly believe in that he said and mentioned was that we need to teach kids to be lifelong questioners. And I feel like we practice that as you know, GIS teachers. We are constantly teaching in that inquiry-based way. Our framework that we use in class always starts with content. So what is the content of our next unit? And we don't just say, hey, kids, now we're going to learn about Shakespeare. But we provide them with questioning and we allow them to discover the content that we are going to be starting. We often will give them a set of clues where they have to go investigate and try to uncover what we are going to be learning about instead of just telling them. That's right. And it's kind of the good old fashioned anticipatory set that most of us have grown up learning about. Those of us have been teaching for a really long time. And it really makes it exciting and fun for our kids. But it also gets them into that mindset of investigation and like going on kind of like a hunt to discover what is it that this unit is about? And it really gives so much power to their own critical thinking skills where if we would just tell them, we take that all away. So I think what, you know, I agree with, with Colin and what you're saying about the biggest takeaway was the lifelong questioner or questioning aspect, but it's also helping them to get out of that learned helplessness that Mm -hmm. maybe we all have learned from COVID or maybe we all have learned from just the ease of our lifestyles and and life being a lot easier these days. But I think it's so important to really push those kids in a way that they feel like their skills of higher level thinking order skills are being tapped into and just giving them that chance, that opportunity. And I think one big word that stuck out Um, from Colin's conversation was allow, just allow them to share the power, allow them to use their power of their creative thinking skills. Have a voice. Yeah. To have a voice. And I, I think for my big takeaway, it's for us to really, you know, take these little pieces or these little nuggets either from Think Law, his organization and what he provides, or just add them ourselves to the curriculum we already have. It's not like we're trying to change everything and throw the bathwater out with the baby or baby out with the bathwater. <laughs> I think it's the right way to go. Anyways, you know what I mean? Embed those critical thinking strategies with the curriculum we already have. And I think that's a huge message for all of our listeners, especially parents um, who may not like be using curriculum, you know, but also for our gen ed teachers that are listening to that it doesn't mean you have to just get rid of the curriculum that you're already using or your district has already adopted. But use the, use it to hook them. Use it to hook their attention, grab their attention, like the example he gave of the pre-calculus yeah. class and just something non-related, but find a way to connect it and hook them and grab their attention so they're wanting to learn these things. Right, which also kind of lends my thought to how he talked about the funk and using the funk in 
your lessons to drive the learning. I think it's so important for us to be able to add that element that's just relatable and relevant to them, like asking them, do they like to have pineapple on their pizza? I mean, that really does trigger those higher order thinking skills of analyzing and evaluating, which is so simple to do, but sometimes we we do forget to use them. I know for us, following our framework and using Bloom Sexonomy literally every day, it's something that we just do. It's it's something that we just bring into our conversations with our students, um, no matter what our unit is. And I think that's the piece where he's trying to just spread that yep. strategy to everyone that possibly can. Just bring those easy ways of, of making like a claim or a judgment to the conversation and, and make it your everyday routine. Yeah. I think we're pretty funky. Don't you think? I think we're really funky. we bring the funk. So we challenge you (laughs) audience to bring the funk. (laughs) All right. See you next time. Thanks for joining us for another episode of Adventures in Being Gifted. If you like our show, please give us a five-star rating, write a review, and tell all your friends too. And don't forget to follow us on Twitter at Being Gifted Pod and join us again next time for more adventures and being gifted.